This will be an interesting one. Let's uh, have me ramble on about the FAQs and the new game mode for a bit. So I'm going to go over all the uh, new changes we did when the FAQ 1.3 dropped. Talk about why those changes were made and just give some general insight there. I mean, this is just general FAQ and errata. A lot of these were answered because they kept coming up. Frequently asked questions. You know, the things that you see over and over again. The ideal goal is that we'll um, drop a faction FAQ about a month after the faction comes out, because that's about enough time to gather up the amount of data and actually see what is a frequently asked question. You know, I always get reminded Riot Games when they're talking about um, League of Legends, uh, is that regardless of the amount of playtest cycles they have, they gather more data in the first 48 hours of a live patch than anything else combined. And of course, you get to see that because, you know, you have your internal playtesters, you've got your internal developers and staff and everything. And then these questions will get out into the wild and someone will go, hey, I'm reading it this certain way that there's no way you could have ever anticipated. Um, so what do I do? It's like, wow, I, uh, I don't even know how you got to that conclusion. Or the better time is like, okay, I can see how you can read it like that. It just never dawned on me that someone would actually read a question like that. Not to say that's wrong or anything. That just goes to, again, show how when something gets out there, you get that raw data and everything, you can just see, you know, how things shape up. But that's the nature of FAQs. That's why we have them. Best thing is to go and answer questions. Now, one thing about the general FAQs and errata process that always kind of, I'm not going to say triggers me, but it's definitely one of those things, is that for some reason people lose sight of the frequently part of frequently asked questions and just get this assumption that every single question in the history of ever that's asked should make it into an FAQ document, which is, that's just not the way the world works. And I'm not just saying that to like the player base. I've seen some companies and some games release FAQ documents that are, I literally feel at times, every question they were asked, regardless of how many times they were asked, and they end up having this just massive bloated FAQ document that's, you know, 30 pages where their rulebook is only like, you know, five or six pages, and that's insanity to me. I mean, with the nature of war games, you're going to have a lot of FAQ questions. You're going to have a lot of situations that need to come up and need to be addressed, but there's a difference between, you know, hey, this is a corner case thing that is addressed by the rules and people just tend to overlook versus this frequently comes up. And that's really the difference. I mean, you you want a nice, concise document, but you don't want anything that's overly bloated. And, um, you know, that's one of the goals here. It's actually funny enough why you see the Lannister FAQ document has not been updated since, like, initial release. I guess it's just there's not a lot of questions that come up with how the Lannisters work. Because it's funny, um, the Starks have an average size FAQ, but some of it came down to some timing wordings on their cards. Um, noting that, you know, those factions and actually quite a number of factions were, you know, designed simultaneously, even if you're not going to see them for a while. Um, but for some reason, the Lannisters, I guess the, we just really nailed the wording pass on those, either that or people just really understand how they work because they're just, aside from the initial questions that were asked when the game came out, there's been nothing. Whereas every so often a Stark thing will come up or a Night's Watch thing will come up and it'll be like, oh, that's a, that's a new one to add in. But so that's a little bit of rambling there. Let's uh let's continue on here. So just going to read down the 1.3 version document, um, going over the new highlighted in blue changes here, and uh, you know just really see if there's anything worth talking about for each of those. I mean a lot of these are going to be just you know what I just covered there, nothing really spectacular, and you know it's not going to be an insane amount of insight here. 
but there might be some little interesting tidbits to find out. In the uh, the general FAQ section, wasn't really anything that was added. Um, you'll you do notice that uh, we do update the rulebook every so often when we have something that we feel needs a technical rewrite. With this pass, we really haven't found anything there. Uh, you know, it's one of those things like the rulebook will constantly get refined as the game goes on, and eventually we will hit that point where it doesn't need any more refinement and. I actually feel we're getting fairly close there because uh, with this last technical pass, we really feel we answered most of the lingering questions that were there. Might be one or two things that might need updating, but by and by, it's in a good spot. So continuing on here, game mode FAQs, nothing really there. Going down to the Starks, they got a new FAQ question in Hodor, uh, whether that was a mandatory effect or a once per game effect. And I actually completely see how this you know, is a question that came up because by the wording, it definitely comes across as a mandatory effect that would happen the first time you are charged. That is offset, though, by the fact that it's a once-per-game effect. And this is just one of those things that... Um, I don't want to say it's taking for granted, you know, just people having played other systems or just kind of having that common verbiage that appears in so many other game systems, like even dating back to, you know, like Magic the Gathering and things like that, which I've stated time and time again, one of the, my biggest pet peeves is people taking previous rules from other systems and trying to import that logic over into other systems. Just because in my past experience, that creates so many problems with people extrapolating like, well, in this system, it works like this. So therefore it's got to work like this. Like, nope, different systems start from the ground up. But this is actually an example of, um, I will even say my own fallacy here, the fact that it is once per game, in my mind, that reads to be an optional effect. Like, I don't have to use it except for when I choose to do it that once per game. But if you read by the strict wording on that, this is a mandatory effect that would technically trigger the first time the unit is charged, which is not the intent. But that's why we have the FAQ clarifying that here. But that's just a neat little tidbit there. Um, you know, again, like I... When someone actually asks the question, you know, hey, do I have to use this the first time? You know, it's like, well, of course not. So it's once per game. You can choose when to use it because you're choosing when when, when that once per game is. But technically, by the strict grammar and verbiage there, that is not the case. But again, just one of those neat little things. Moving down along the rest of the Starks here, didn't see anything that's really there. Lannisters, you guys are just staying as you are. Uh, Night's Watch. So... We have a number of questions that come up with Take the Black. And it's a lot of technical things here. It's funny because this is one of those cards that, you know, going through playtesting cycles and things like that, yeah, it kind of creates some of these weird scenarios, can create some of these weird scenarios, but it was never anything overtly complicated or anything of that nature that came up. And then the card gets released into the wild, and it's one of those that just had a bombardment of questions come up about how it works. Um, and again, none of them wrong or anything that oh okay there were a couple instances that i'm not going to get into where the questions were just listen man you're just making up rules i i really can't help you here you're you're literally just making up effects that this thing does those type of like questions you really can't go in and say anything other than just read what's on the card because there are some people that they just want to play cards as they think they should be played even though there is no backing in how the actual mechanics of that card operates. This is one of those cards that people try to apply some thematics to and go like, well, you know, this makes more sense from, you know, a fluff or a narrative perspective. Like, eh, 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 you got to stop that. Okay, 
This is a technical game. I understand that we are based in a setting here and that yes, these cards are all meant to be flavorful. The effects are all meant to give you that really good feel about what the unit's doing. End of the day though, these are technical effects. They do technical things. If you try to make them do more than those technical things, then you're wrong. If the rules don't say you can do something, you can't do it, okay? I'm not gonna get into the specifics of, you know, um, examples here because I don't really wanna call anyone out or bring up any of those. But uh, this card had some some of those situations that came up. You know, granted, the questions that are here in the FAQ are all perfectly reasonable. Um, the new ones that were added here is if I take an attachment with once per game effect that has already been used, can I use that effect again? The answer to that is no, it's a once per game effect. Once per game means once per game. Doesn't like the nothing happened to the character, you know, it's, it's still the same one, still the same effect. If it has been used, it's been used. It, the game doesn't care if it's switched owners. Can I take an attachment that is, uh, from that unit that is previously destroyed or otherwise somehow removed from the unit? This is one of those technical things because of the way the card works. It says take one attachment from that unit. Um, the intent of this is, of course, meant to be at the time that unit was destroyed. But if you go by strictest wording on here, then and also I will note that a lot of the times FAQ questions and problems come from people reading the strictest wording, which is a double-edged sword because I... That's actually what you want. You want people to be able to go by the strictest wording of this. This is what this means. The thing is, is that you always want that to coincide with the actual intent. And that's where it gets a little tricky because that's not always the case. Ideally, you'd want it to be the case, but that's the ideal. And I've yet to see a game that can masterfully do that. I've seen some that have come really close. I'm not going to call them out here because, again, just like I don't want to be negative, I don't want to be overly praising of games. I will just say that it's... um. There are some, there are certain turning miniature games out there that I have a deep respect for with the amount of technical writing that goes into their stuff. Magic is actually a good example of that too. I don't know why I feel okay calling them out, namely because they've probably been around for 30 years, but you can read a magic card and you know the exact technical letter, what that card does, you know, 9.9 .9 out of 10 times. So, all right, moving on here, we're going down to the free folk. These guys were entirely new here, so every question is, you know, just come up from the first month or so of these guys being released. Um, questions about the Trappers, the Savage Giants, and then a couple thrown in there from Mance's cards, which they weren't the most asked questions, but they came up enough to warrant being put on here. The Really, the questions that came up the most were about the Trappers, when you can use their order, um, that needs to be, uh, the unit has to start within long range. That was just one of those things that people were playing it where, okay, where you're creating this dynamic bubble that's around here, so you're constantly having to measure around in this 12-inch radius, and if you cross over that at any given point, then I can trigger that. This is one of those situations where I see where you're coming from, but let's also take a moment to realize that if you're creating a situation where you're having to stage a geometric bubble around something that is a constant variable and changing and shifting constantly during the game to where you're having to constantly check it, you're probably not reading that effect correctly. Because while we want depth in the game, we don't want something like that. And if you're if you know something like that is introduced into your how you're reading a ruling, you should probably take a step back and think like, okay, is this the is this probably the way it functions? Now granted again, it's a technical wording thing. You want it to never be a this is probably the way it works, which is why we have to have FAQs. But um yeah, you know, it's just one of those situations where you know, sometimes the, the you can take that Occam's razor um, effect and go like, well, if this is the simplest answer, it might be the correct one. That usually can apply to a lot of things, and that's definitely common in war games, especially song. 
I mean, if you if you read it like, okay, this is how it should work, that's probably how it should work. Not always the case, but ideally that is it. Okay. Moving down to the neutral FAQ. Oh, this was the big showstopper right here, was Varus the Spider. Removing the last line from his ability, this may be repeated if unsuccessful. So I've actually had a decent amount of questions as to why that was done, and then I saw a lot of speculation online as to why that was done. And I love reading speculation because it is exactly just that. Um, so for this one, I will actually talk about here. Why was his effect changed? Was it, oh my god, overpowered barbecue sauce, whatever the kids are saying these days? Mm, to be honest, if I'm speaking just of my personal opinion and experiences, uh, the effect is not overpowered for the cost. That's actually around what it should be. The issue that I had that actually tilted me more toward, okay, let's go ahead and make this change, is the fact that his effect was too reliable, and I actually feel was dampening play experiences by removing tactical elements from players. That seemed like a very scripted and thought out wording, but that's because it was. Not scripted, but very thought out. And the reason for this being is that one of the things I despise in games are uh, what I would call stupid, easy choices. And that's just something being very simple. Okay, like, oh, I can just do this and not worry about something. I don't like that. Now, there's grounds for that in some situations, in some cases, okay? But what I don't like seeing is things that a player does not have to think about. And what I mean by that is basically anything that you can just go, oh, well, I'll just do this. Everything you do should be a tactical choice that is going to have ramifications and effects based on your decisions. The thing about Varus is that that effect allowed you to basically cancel with a very big degree of certainty one important thing that happened in the game. And the problem with, and I don't actually have a problem with that. My problem is that it removed a tactical thinking element from players in the fact that they would tunnel vision in on this is the one big important thing that I need to stop. And I'm going to just save everything to make sure that stops. And that I don't like. Um, on both sides, actually. Because what it will do is now... Uh, Okay, there's a lot to talk about here, and I'm trying not to trip up and in getting into too many things at once. From the Varus player's controlling perspective, they are going to save him for his one big move. And usually, if they decide that they want to stop something, they are not going to stop using tokens on it until they get the effect they want. Which means that Varus was going away from this whole micro-manipulation, I'm going to do some subtle back, back behind-the-scenes manipulations to, I'm going to stop this one big play. Uh, from the opponent's perspective, they would fall into the trapping of, damn, Varus is going to stop my one big play. And here's the overarching thing. The game shouldn't come down to, oh my god, this is my one big play. And it actually suddenly does. Usually it is a combination of things happening, but Varus creates that moment where it was like, yeah, if he hadn't stopped this, I would have won the game. And let's be honest. Most of the time, that's not the case. Or, you know, oh man, if I had only you know, stopped my opponent, if only he couldn't do this, then I wouldn't have lost. Let's be honest, okay? One thing did not contribute to you losing the game, usually. I'm not going to say that can't happen, because it can happen in any game. But 
usually your win-loss is going to be determined by a number of factors. And frankly, the more factors that can be calculated in, the better I think the system is. You don't really want a game that comes down to one or two big giant swings that are going to have just decide how things, uh, how the game is going to play out. You want to be, okay, this event happened and it was really bad for me. This event happened, it was really good for me. All of these factors combined together are what led to the eventual win-loss and the whole experience. Games should be a series of moments, but they shouldn't be this one giant big moment. And the problem with Varus here is that he was creating these big moments, okay? Uh, and what I mean by that is, usually, again, when you when a player was using Varus, he or she was using all the tokens to make sure this effect did or, or did or didn't happen. Sorry, didn't happen in this case. Regardless if that was the better play at the time or not, because usually it was just they committed to it, they want to make sure it doesn't happen, versus, okay, I didn't roll what I needed, let me save some of these tokens for later. So it was artificially creating these moments that people were hinging a gameplay strategy or plan on and thinking that this is the key moment that I lost or won the game. And that just wasn't the case. But Varus was creating this mentality. Um, and that, that's just not healthy. The other part as well was, again, he was a safe option where if there was something you wanted to stop, you could reliably stop it because you had four tokens, you had to roll three plus. Even if you have like the world's crappiest dice rolls, you're probably gonna roll three plus on one of those. Whether, again, you should have used those tokens there or not. And that's really what it came down to. Now, with his effect being that you can't reroll, you have a 66% chance of canceling any of those effects you roll for, which uh, is still pretty reliable, but it's not a guarantee. In fact, it's only a two thirds guarantee, which is not a good guarantee. 60% of the time, it works every time. Uh, but now you can't bank on this being like, okay, this is the big once per game thing. I've got to stop it. That doesn't exist anymore. Now it's you can subtly manipulate things across the game four times, which is a lot healthier state than, you know, okay, let me just blow all these counters here on stopping this one thing and then making that thing be really, really big and important because it was the one thing I stopped. Now, if something bad happens to you and you didn't stop it, okay, well, that sucks. But you have three other times that you can try stopping something else. And that's going to kind of smooth out things there. So end of the day, really talking about that, it it wasn't so much of a fact of, oh my God, this guy is just too strong. We've got to like nerf him to the ground or anything, because I really don't feel like that. I feel that if two players knew what they were doing and were on equal footing, then Varus you know, was fine the way he was. He's also one of those pieces that if you are not on equal footing and you are not of the same skill level, he can seem really, really oppressive. Uh, it's those units like Flayed Men or the Mountain That Rides, Varus is definitely in that category of if you don't know how to deal with them, they are going to be punishing for you. But if you do know how to deal with them, okay, that's fine. Then they're just another element you've got to get around. You know, you're going to call that a skill cap ratio or, you know, whatever term you want to use. Varus definitely fits in that category because you've got to play around him. Like an experienced player will know, okay, my opponent has four of these counters per game. They're probably going to use them to cancel one of my big things. How do I want to bait that out? How do I want to split that up? If they do cancel it, since there's a good um, chance they will, what's my backup plan? A new player will just play against Varus and go like, well, that guy canceled my plans, and then I lost the game. Okay, well, again, we're getting circular back to the start here. 
that one thing probably didn't lose you the game. And if it did, I really got to say that probably wasn't a good plan because if you're putting literally all your eggs in one basket, knowing your opponent has a counter and can smash all those eggs, that wasn't a good plan, man. Sorry. But so that's that's that talking a bit like there. And now uh, let's, I guess, go ahead and talk about the new game mode, you know, Fire and Blood. So I really like this one because it is just, um, I'm not going to say it's a straightforward as like go and kill each other game mode because frankly, we really shouldn't be making anything like that because you can just do that if you want. I find that a little boring, but this one is definitely one that I like a lot because it is a combat focused one, which I like those. We have objective based ones. This one is go out there and murder guys dead. I like this one. The extended um, the extended deployment zones are nice. It gives you a really good field of units if you want to stack things up. Range units become pretty scary in this mode. We've got your crosswomen. You've got your scorpion weapon crews that you can set up pre-screened. You don't have to spend any time actual like maneuvering or deploying them around. You actually have two like basically full set battle lines that you're deploying. The dynamic choices of the marked target system here I really like because you've got that option of, okay, do I want to mark their dangerous unit so when I inevitably have to kill that thing, it's going to be worth extra points, knowing though that they can in turn kill points? Do I want to throw it on some like little chafe or cheap units here, knowing I can get um, take them down, but you know the problem is they can just kind of remove them from the battlefield? You know, it's all about putting choices and tactical decisions in the hands of both players. You've got to learn how to, you know, which of my opponent's units are, am I going to mark? And there's no easy answer. It's not like I can go in here going, oh, well, I'm always going to mark their tank units, or I'm always going to mark their cheap units. You've got to dynamically look at what they have, see what their army construction is, and see, you know, is this going to be the right call? Because say they're playing the exact same Stark list, but they might be playing Great John Umber versus um, Orneo or uh, Brendan Tully. Okay, their commander is going to really change which those units you're going to want to mark because if they're playing a great John Umber list. They could be playing the exact same list, but you know their units are become much more aggressive and start dealing you damage as they take wounds. So okay, maybe marking that Tully Sworn Shield unit's not the best idea. Conversely, switch over to you know okay, they're running Brendan Tully as their commander. Am I going to have the damage output to actually kill that Tully Sworn Shield unit that I have marked? Or do I want to focus on one of their more aggressive units? Like, okay, maybe they have, you know, Berserkers or Brandon Hodor. All right, I know that Great John is going to make that a nightmare unit. Do I want to have to deal with that? Brandon Tully is going to make them a little more survivable, but might be worth going after those guys. So, you know, that might be something to consider there. I like, you know, again, the tactical choices it's giving you uh, in that regard. Having your combat commander um, marking targets is always, you know, a fun thing here because it's adding to your commander's unit is making them a little bit more important on the battlefield. Okay, do I protect them? But at the same time, they need to be up there in the forefront marking things. It gives me another choice for my opponent to go like, okay, I'm going to mark his commander unit, noting that it is an important unit, noting that it is going to be up there probably in the thick of things. You know, okay, that might be one of my choices. So I really like this scenario because it's very simple in the overall mechanics but the tactical depth that it brings to the table is something I really like. So this is one of my favorite game modes that I uh, have here. And, you know, definitely a welcome addition to the tournament roster. And so with here, you know, we've got... The idea is that eventually, and actually right now I will say, you have game modes that are going to reward, you know, tactical list creation. And also I want to point this out. This The tournament format is a dual list format. And... I really feel if your tournaments aren't running dual list, you are missing out on a lot of the uh, strategic and tactical elements that you are supposed to be having 
in these tournaments because they are supposed to be following a dual list format. So anytime I see someone posting about like, oh yeah, we're running single list and that's how we're doing it. That's, that's fine if you guys are beginners and learning the game, but you really need to start moving to a two list format because that's what a lot of these game modes are based around because you can make an all comers list. There's no problem with that. But the idea is that you are supposed to have two lists to be able to switch around between, okay, I have one list that's really good against faction X. I've got another list that's good against faction Y. I've got one list that's really good at objective-based gameplay. I've got one that's really good at the more combat-oriented gameplay you know, elements here. You're getting denied strategic and tactical flexibility and options when you are forced to run a one-list format. And again, there's nothing really wrong with that because it does make you build an all-comers list, but it is taking away that element of, I have my two lists. These are why I've made my two lists. These are the strengths and weaknesses of these two lists. It's taking that away from you. And I don't like that. Um, which granted, I understand, you know, again, if people are new, you're running a new tournament, you don't want to overly complicate people, or they're just running what they have. I get all that. I do. But it, it's still like, it pains me a bit anytime I see just tournaments going, oh, we only run one list. Like, um, okay, what else are you going to ignore from the, the tournament document, man? Because, like, these are all made of reason. But, uh, all right, that should do it for this time. Uh, hopefully, this has been a little bit insightful and not just been 25 minutes of just straight rambling, like I'm channeling dead crazy people. But uh, okay, so that's it. Join me next time. We'll talk about something completely different. Bye.